0: I'm sure you guys have no questions because this is all painfully clear. So um, it's good grief. Um, Questions, thoughts. Jake, you got one or you just. Microphone. Oh, he's got the microphone. Wanda.
1: So the first resurrection is, is that the rapture?
0: Um, No. At the rapture, as I understand it, um, as I understand it, the dead in Christ are raised first, then we who are alive, Paul says, will be caught up with the Lord. So when the Lord returns, so here's, the um, word rapture is not a term in the Bible. The Bible has living believers caught up in the air with the Lord. We've, we call that the rapture. Mm-hmm. And Paul says in Thessalonians, where he speaks of this, that he wants you to know, actually the dead in Christ raise first. So the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, occurs moments, a minute, Chronologically, before, but very close to, the 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 being caught up in the air of the of the, Lord, of, the uh, of the church, those who are alive when the Lord returns, that's the first resurrection. Oh. yes.
1: Okay. So the ones that are alive go for, That's what you're saying. No, let's go. Let's go there. It's
0: it's Thessalonians, Maybe it's too is it deep first or second brain. Thessalonians? Which one is it? It's. Huh?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thessalonians, which one? I don't know numbers. Hold on. Um, what? What? One sixteen. Linda's got it covered. Thank you, Linda. Oh, four sixteen. Get it straight, Linda. First Thessalonians, <laughs> First, Thessalonians four. Very good. Very good. Okay, First Thessalonians four. I'm just saying, because, like, just, just to be clear, when people are like, I don't believe in the rapture, well, yes, you do. It's all about the timing. Everybody believes some group of people are going to get caught up in the air with the Lord. That's all we I mean by rapture. The, the, the $8 billion is when does that happen, and how does it relate to other events? That believers who are alive when the Lord returns, will be caught up in the air with them, that's what it says. The, the, what people usually mean, I don't believe in the rapture, they don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, the timing, so I don't want to get into that. Plainly taught is some group of people get caught up in the air of the Lord in your terms. Okay. So first Thessalonians four, um, where is it? Okay. 13. Well, certain 13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, it's interesting, Paul thought it might be possible he might live till the return of Christ. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So that's the first resurrection, and it occurs shortly before, um, but nearly concurrent with the, the uh, being caught up in the air of the Lord of those who are alive when he returns. So yes, the, what, we, what, they, what we call the rapture, being caught up in the air, and I'm not even arguing about when that takes place shortly before minutes seconds before is the first resurrection okay. so no Mike, Mike just because you're not listening to the podcast anymore because you're here <laughs> you got to respect the four other people who still are. so it sounds like what you're saying is basically the
2: the moment of the first resurrection is when all believers are going to join God. Leave planet Earth. Right. First, the dead, and those right after who aren't dead yet. But they're all one category
0: believers. Yes. Which means also my implication, there's got to be a third resurrection. Well, because in the millennial kingdom, there will be those who die. I mean, so Isaiah talks about the, the person who dies at 100 years old will be considered cursed by God. So there'll be people who die in the resurrection. Um, there'll be, so presumably some of the people who die in the resurrection are believers and they're not going to get raised in the second resurrection, the sort of resurrection to judgment. So we're not exactly told how and when they get raised, but the Lord will sort it out. There's one big general resurrection at the second coming of the Lord. There's one big resurrection of judgment at the end of the millennium. Um, that, that sort of caps the two things. Okay.
2: If you're looking for a very careful laying out of the dispensationalist pre-tribulation ordering of these final it's events. It's taking place in right the other now. room right yes. now. <laughs> and he also, all that stuff gets posted online, both yeah. his notes and yeah. his sermons. So Dave Lample has 40-something, maybe 50-ish yes. lessons on this where he very carefully He's walks through the Graver man
0: than I am. Yes, and it's, right. it
2: is very thorough if, you know, it, it is one understanding of it but I it's think very could thorough. Say meticulous meticulous yes it's i'm making a plug for him you don't think he'd mind do you okay anyway it, you're all in here so you're not in there but you can visit his website and find all the notes
0: our church website hosts it too yes sorry yeah, his website, want, our like, want website it, want yeah, to yeah. go
2: yeah. deeper into that
0: okay it's there okay cool okay other thoughts and questions <clears throat> Okay, then I'll, I got some places to go. Um, so any any questions, anyone not sold on the fact that the two hours are coming are separate events? Because that was like the first thing I had to basically crack when I'm just giving insight into like my study. Okay, these things really line up kind of parallel. An hour is coming, this is now here, an hour is coming. And in both hours, people are hearing the voice. And in one, um, the, it, you can see how initially, my initial actual thought is that, Probably is the same thing. And only as I was looking at it long, i like, no, this isn't the same thing. Because the parallelism is um, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And in the second one, when all who are in the tombs will come out. Well, that, that could sound like the dead hearing and living. Um, but because of what's said, pre, both previously and afterwards, now these aren't the same things. So even though they, they're put together, there's a lot of parallelism in how they're put together. They're separate events. And, and my argument that I think Jesus is unpacking further what he just said in 24. Um, it really, 24, if you look, let me get back to John. John 5:24 is really the evangelistic appeal of the passage. It, it stands alone. One verse in the middle of all this, where he's, look, I'm telling you, if you hear what I'm saying and you believe me of life, then he gets back to talking about himself and the fathers. In the midst of this discussion of himself and the father is this earnest, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then we get another truly, truly. But we're really, I think, picking back up from the first truly, truly in 19, because we're still talking about judgment, and we're still talking about resurrection. And so inserted in the midst of this discussion is this truly, truly, I'm telling you, which I think explains why Jesus would make such a point of this, orchestrate such a conflict, and drop such a hard... Teaching. I mean, for, for monotheistic Jews, this is heavy-duty, hard stuff. Um, and, and I think the, the linking with the Son of Man from Daniel 7 can help. I was talking with a couple of y'all who, I get it, are sympathetic. Man, I, can, I mean, you didn't say this, but it was, the sentiment seemed to be, I can understand why the Jews would have a hard time with this. Um, and so, linking it to there, there, there is at least one person in the Old Testament who might be able to make claims like this. This person who shows up in Daniel seven and elsewhere, Jesus makes the point. So Psalm one hundred and ten, who's David's Lord? Who's not the Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who, who's that person? And that's D- Jesus again saying, don't you see? There's it's not. Not that you could f- fully flesh out who this person is, but that there's some enigmatic person in the Old Testament who is distinct from Yahweh, who David calls my Lord. Doesn't, doesn't that make you scratch your head? And who, who is this Melchizedekian priest who David calls Lord, who's distinct from Yahweh? Who, who's that then? You know, um, And he silences the Jews in the temple in Luke with that question. Uh, by the way, that entire argument hinges upon the validity of the psalm titles. Because if, if the psalm title, which describes it to David, isn't sure, well, the answer could be, that's not David talking, that's some lesser king, and he's probably talking about David. David's my lord, you know. Some Davidite looks back to his great-grandfather and says to my lord, there you go. No, it only, it's only inescapably proving someone greater if it's David speaking. And so you need the psalm title to give you that, to make it clear. This is David saying... The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So who is David's Lord? If the Messiah is David's son, how is he his Lord? Which is to say, look, there is some space in the Old Testament for some really big, powerful, significant person who you should see the shadow of in the Old Testament. Like, I, this shouldn't be entirely groundbreakingly new stuff. Um, we talked about the angel of the Lord also being a very strange, uh, odd. By by odd, I mean just doing strange things, receiving worship like God receives worship. Um, Samson's parents say, "Woe to us! We've seen God." Well, they saw the angel of the Lord, but they said, "We've seen God." That's interesting. So I I think in answer to is is the Trinity taught in the Old Testament? I, I Nobody is held accountable that they should have known this. So God nowhere speaks to people. You ought to have known this. And Jesus has no problem doing that. Like when Nicodemus said, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't know this. Come on. Jesus does treat them as accountable. You ought to see that there's room for something like this. You ought to be able with what I'm saying to see that it can be compatible with what you've got. Um, he does insist they ought to know that much. So, um, Questions? Is it snowing outside? Welcome to Iowa. If you don't like the weather, give it five minutes. It'll change. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the biggest... People here complain about the snow. I don't care how much snow comes. It'll be gone tomorrow. It'll be gone tomorrow. Some of you rejoice in that, but my kids mourn. Um... My, yes, Liz, 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 hold on, microphone to Liz. Um, I have a question, just, uh-huh. I don't know, I just kind of had one of those, like, big aha moments, but also super confused. So where do all the people that have died as non-believers from the beginning till now go if in revelation the second yeah. resurrection then the lord sends them there yeah there's basically as best as i can tell if you turn to revelation 20 and again i just encourage you to tune in the lample as he's really focused on this for lack of I i don't mean to sound trite there is something like hell's waiting room um, and there seems to be something like heaven 's waiting room that 's now been emptied um, but in revelation 20 they're called um, what is it well let 's just take a look here um, verse twenty verse eleven um, then I saw a great i just, sorry every I, I start here because this verse just What a figure of speech to give a word picture of greatness and awesome wonder. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled and there was no place found for them. Just the picture of earth and sky being like, get me out of here. I don't know. It's just awesome. I saw the dead, great and small, standing for the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them. So uh, death and Hades would be a place of holding. So in, in Jesus' story of the rich man and, and Lazarus, I know some people think it's a parable, but there's, it, it matters not whether it's a parable or not for my purposes here. He's in a place of torment, and, and, and Lazarus is in a place of comfort. Um, Abraham's bosom, I think, is what the King James calls it. Um, and so, according to my understanding, in, in Ephesians 4, when Christ ascended, he empties out heaven's waiting room, for lack of a better term, and takes with him those there into the throne room, in into heaven. Now that the price has been fully paid, they, they come with him in his train. He takes a coast of captives captive. Um, on the other hand, we get one of the demoniacs say to dem- Jesus, have you come to send us to the pit before the time? And there's reference in Jude and second Peter to some angels who've already been put in darkest chain. There's some place of punishment already with some people in it. And yet the lake of fire is the final destination of everybody. And that no one's to my knowledge in the lake of fire yet. The first people in the lake of fire are verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So the first inhabitants of the lake of fire or is that unholy trio? And then, everybody else. So there is a, there is a place of, of, of a, a, an unpleasant place <laughs> that pales in comparison to the final stop, um, which is the lake of fire. So regardless, the rich man is pleading for a drop of water. Like it's, it's degrees of bad, but this lake of fire is worse. Um. So, so yeah. Does that answer your question, Liz? Sarah. So does that kind of connect with when it's talking about the sea, and it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and then later on it says the sea was no more. Yeah. Well, I think the concept there is the dead bodies in this. To to. to so for Jewish culture, burial is a big deal. Your bones, your ossuary box is a big deal. And the Jews were not a big seafaring people. And the sea repeatedly is used in in the Psalms and other places as a picture of the untamable, chaotic, terrifying force. So repeatedly, though great floods are upon me. you know. So there's this idea that when the Jews want to draw upon a, a picture of something overwhelming and overpowering and scary go to the sea. And part of that is because bodies lost in, the, well, where are the bodies? Well, one of the things we learn here is whatever, and I'd say by implication, bodies lost in any other place, every bog, every pit, every well, every you know, whatever. I mean, by extension, by grabbing the sea here, what you're saying is everybody anywhere, no matter how far away or how decomposed or how, how far removed it is, they're all being brought back to life. Um, and so that, that's my understanding of the significance of the sea. It would be the picture of the most inaccessible place. In a Jewish mind, what would be the hardest place to reach? The bottom of the sea. Well, even the sea is going to give up all of its dead. Um, it's not that the dead people are hanging out in the sea. We, we, their bodies, this is the notion of the reclamation of the body and the resurrection of the body, um, that their bodies will be raised. The sea will give up their dead bodies, I think, by implication. But, yeah. Kevin? Oh, okay. Cool? Okay. And sorry
2: oh, yeah. to do this twice, but again, for follow-up on that. The, <laughs> sure thing. The
0: book. Dave Lample. H- yeah, no, no. <laughs> Everybody.
2: Um, a couple years ago, there was a lot of people here that wrote a book called he- Heaven by Randy Alcorn, mm-hmm. which is a very nice unpacking of sort of like current state and final state of yeah. those who have passed away. Yeah. And it's good and godly, and we, we may have some in the bookstore. I'm not sure.
0: I don't know. So. Well, one of the things that's interesting is... Your body will be raised. Y- you may be separated from your body for a time, but everybody will be permanently reunited with their body forever. Everybody will. Um, y- we are en-souled bodies or embodied souls, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and so sometimes you'll hear... This is just my earth suit. This is just throwaway husk. Well, it's a husk that gets transformed, but there's undeniable continuity between our current body and our resurrection body. Even as there's undeniable discontinuity, we will be changed. It was sown perishable; it's raised the imperishable. So there's there's a line. I'm thinking First Corinthians fifteen. There's a line of deep of d- distinctions, and I can't parse it fully out. Jesus' resurrection body can apparently walk through walls or teleport or something because he just showed up, right? Um, And yet it was enough continuity that he still had wounds and he still had a wound in his side and he's still recognizable. So um, even as there will be significant discontinuity and change and transformation, there will retain continuity. Something of this body and my connectedness with it will endure forever, which is part of the basis Paul uses to rebuke going to um prostitutes is your body is not a throwaway husk it's for the lord and god will raise both you and your body on the last day so it matters what you do with your body it's not completely unimportant um you know so one, one of the if you guys remember the series we did and that book love thy body that's really one of nancy pierce's main points is that um the goodness of the body, um, yeah, yeah, our bodies are broken, and there are people who have diseased bodies, and there are people who have bodies that have are born. Not Jesus talks about people born eunuchs. We know that. But there is a goodness to the body and and a mark of God's glory, an image on it that we ought to embrace, and we ought to celebrate, and we ought to rejoice in. Um, and it, it's, it's the Platonists who pit physical against spiritual. It's not Christians that should be doing that. Uh, it's not more spiritual because it's not physical. I mean, that's basically what you get from Augustine is um, this deep seated suspicion that any physical pleasure must be carnal and tainted. So he greatly loved the, the music of uh, boys' choirs. And yet he was suspicious that maybe he liked it carnally. Like this, it can't be as righteous because it's, it's a physical thing. And like, the creative order is good, man. Like, like, I know you can go too far in that direction, but you, the church history is filled with people who go too far the other way. And so the, you know, the celibate priesthood in um, the Catholic church, why? Because it'd be more clearly, it'd be more godly and more holy to forego physical pleasure. You know, so um, we should be affirming the goodness of both. And the resurrection of the body is part of what speaks to that, that God isn't just going to raise your spirit He's going to raise your body, and you will be united with your body forever. A changed and transformed body, sure, absolutely, but your body, nonetheless. Um, Deb, pardon me.
1: Kind of a weird question, but I happen to think. Oh no, I think... can't handle weird questions, Deb. Oh, sorry. It's it's uh, cremation and ashes. They'll become bodies, right?
0: People disintegrated at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, absolutely.
1: But yeah. then again, I've heard a lot of people saying cremation is bad.
0: There is no, law, words, there's no law or command about cremation, Deb. Um, generally speaking, it's all about people's take on symbolism and going with, why are people, do you know why people are buried facing the east? Because that's the direction Jesus comes from. That,
2: we were told
0: that this week by the- I was told that by the by the funeral director and and another, just funeral I just did I didn't know that he was like oh that's why when I, when I was doing when I was at Gary's graveside we, we were waiting for everyone to show up and the funeral director was telling me and I'm like I didn't know that he's like oh yeah so the, it was it's just a, it's just a it's a um, holdover from a Christian culture and so people thinking through it thought wouldn't it be cool if when you're resurrected you're, you're already facing in the direction Jesus is going to show up in. Yeah, that is cool. Now, does that mean if you've got face buried facing west, you're bad? No, right? You want to make a new law, but I get how that's, that's cool. It's like when we did the baptism service last week, Daniel, um, you, Eric, you saw Daniel shut me down with the whole baptizing face down, right? And he thought through some of the symbolism, which the second I thought through it, so what Gary Crandall, because again, what? where's the verse I go to? Baptism forward, down, just use, maybe just dunk down and get up. So Gary Crandall taught me a method of baptism in our baptistry where you step on the calf and the person just bends forward and has the advantage of, you know, you're less likely to get water up your nose and have someone freaking out. (coughs) But Daniel pointed out, and he's quite right, that to the degree that baptism symbolizes death and burial, in our culture we don't bury people face down, do we? So... Would not the symbol, the sign of baptism then connect better and more fully? And when I thought it through, I'm like, yeah, it makes total sense. Let's do that instead, totally. But were we wrong when we baptized face down before? No. So so the people that argue about cremation are usually arguing around those lines. Um, so I, I would want to make it clear. There's no like sin or not sin. I think the rationale would be, as I understand it, that given the the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, um, let's let's treat the body with honor or something. But I don't want to say anything else is dishonorable. The Jews had a really interesting deal; they'd let the body rot, come back a year later, gather the bones, put it in a bone box, and, and put that and bury that. So, um, so yeah, I it it, it is not something we want to burden anyone's conscience with. I, I think thinking through those things is great. And I think when people think through it and they explain their thoughts, like Daniel's thought with baptism, like, that makes perfect sense. That seems good. Let's do that. Sure. But, yeah, Pristina, you want to... Oh, no, sorry. You're not next, Pristina. Sorry. All the way in the back. Yes.
1: Okay. When you die, my understanding was your spirit goes right to heaven if you're a believer in Christ... And then you're saying that the body is resurrected in the first resurrection. Yes. So Paul
0: says in Philippians two, um, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, "Today you will be with me in paradise." So after the re- after the resurrection, so there for those who have died, who are believers, there will be a time of separation from their body and their spirit. Their spirit is with the Lord. In Revelation, there's a whole host of soulless, body, bodiless souls under the throne of God, crying out, how long, O Lord, do you vindicate our blood? And they are told to wait for a little while longer until the number of their appointed was, was fulfilled. Um, and so there, there is a time where people's bodies and souls will be separated. But in the scope of eternity, that's a blink of an eye. Um, We were made in souled bodies or embodied souls, and we will, for all of eternity, one way or the other, continue. There is, however, a period of time where, for many, there will be a separation for a time. Does that... Are you asking something beyond that, or is that... The resurrection of all believers who have died will be when the Lord returns. Okay. Christina.
1: Okay, so I don't have a question about death or anything, so it's a new subject. Is that okay? No, I'm not trying to be funny. I just welcome a new topic. Okay. Yes. So, and I apologize if I missed it during the sermon, but what is actually the difference between son of man and son of God?
0: Ooh, um, two different Messianic titles um, generally. So go to, go to Romans 1. The short answer is Son of God testifies to Jesus' deity. Son of man testifies to Jesus' humanity. Um, and both are important. Paul, in his opening to Romans 1, puts it this way. And, and, and part of why I'm doing this is because when theologians try to parse this stuff out, and, and it's, we should. We should understand what Jesus said. We need to be careful to not go beyond what's written. And so sometimes, even like this morning, when I talked about self-existence. Well, that's our word. Um, I think what we mean by self-existence, mostly or if not totally true, like I'm pretty comfortable with self existent, But... The bible's emphasis is God is, And if we want a term for it what what word are we to use to describe one who is and always has been is and, and never came to be well really he's self-existent I guess that seems like a pretty good title, but it's, but it's our word it's our term you know it's our handle we put on it so speaking of Jesus we'll talk about Jesus according to his humanity, Jesus according to his deity okay where's the where 's the basis biblically? to do in that type of division? Are we parsing things out finer than we ought? Well, part of that basis is here. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit. So you can speak of Jesus according to the flesh, and you can speak of Jesus according to the spirit as the son of God. And so generally those two titles, son of man, son of God, are used as sort of umbrella heads over Jesus according to his deity, Jesus according to his humanity, Jesus according to the flesh, Jesus according to the spirit, um, that we get at least that much from there. Um, and these are deep, deep things. Like I said, if you, I only read to you a portion of the Council of Nicaea and the Athanasian Creed. They just go on for paragraph after paragraph, because primarily in the church, there are all sorts of people who I figured it out. And no, you hadn't, it was heresy. And so and so, and so um and so mostly they're guarding, I could tell you like what heresy they're guarding is adoption. There's there's a view that Jesus became God, he was adopted into the Godhead, adoptionism, no. Um there's view that he well, he's God, but he's little G God, he, he's subordinate, and that's Arianism, okay. And then you've got docetism, and you've got all these I could trot them out for you historically so they didn't just generally speaking doctrine is written in response to error um it wasn't that they got together as soon as christianity was legalized and thought it'd be really really cool to write really complicated statements on jesus humanity and deity it was because all sorts of false teaching had gone out that contradicted various scriptures they're putting they're like what do we think what are we actually saying um, and so historically, we know what errors they were guarding against. I mean, every one of those words in those creeds is intentional, purposeful. And they're fighting over like homoousia and homo. What's the other one? Mm-hmm. Similar substance or same substance? That, that that debate right there. Is Jesus of similar or same substance with the Father? Well, the Arians who believed Jesus wasn't fully God wanted similar. He's God-like, mm-hmm. but there's, there's the wiggle room there to say, but he's not God. And the, the hardline Athanasians, the the ones who held for the deity of Christ, no, he is same. Whatever substance God is of, Jesus is that. Whatever the... Su- I mean, and we're already using categories that, that aren't biblical. We're using platonic categories and, and philosophical categories. But the fight is still... There. Is Jesus fully God, like the Father, or not? And so they're... Every one of those words, there's a there's a doctrinal battle behind them. So it's a really cool testimony to, to church history to read those things. Yeah,
1: Thanks, that helps me. I'm actually going through two thousand years of Christ's power. Nice,
0: nice. Um, but no, we do at least get Jesus according to the flesh. Speaking of Jesus that way, at least we get from the intro to Romans. Like that's okay. There's there's a there's warrant and pattern for that. We got two minutes. So. Oh, in the back again. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I was listening to a radio program a while back ago, and a person asked this question, can Jesus sin? And the person (laughs) said, he can't. He is God. And the person replied, the radio show hostess person said, well, he is God. He can't sin, but he does not desire to sin. It's in him he's been tempted. So I just didn't know what to think about all that, so I'll leave that with you.
0: And so with one minute to go... It all okay. Okay. Here's the short. Here's the here's the short answer. Yes and no, depending on what you mean by can. Definitions of words at this point matter. The reason why I say what matters is he didn't sin. We know that, and we know he was tempted. If you define Jesus' inability to sin in the wrong way, you're gonna. And I've heard people do this before. Jesus' temptation would be like me, I mean literally I've heard someone say this Jesus was tempted, sure, and if I took a bunch of maggoty trash and put it on the lid of a trash can and brought it to you and said, hmm, doesn't this look appetizing, that was Jesus being tempted the problem with that is that doesn't make me want to boldly approach the throne of grace for help because I have a sympathetic high priest who sympathizes with my temptation, if Jesus experienced the temptation is ew that's not my experience of temptation Uh, my experience of temptation is some part of me going, ooh, yes Um, so if, if you press so hard, the, it's Latin terms, peccability, impeccability. Um, pecare is to sin. Um, so Jesus, Jesus um, temptation, not temptation. What I would stress, though, is that in Luke's gospel, it's precisely because Jesus prayed that he doesn't sin. And it's precisely because Peter fell asleep that he does. So I think Luke, that Jesus makes that point clear in the garden. Were you not able to pray even for a while? Jesus did things so that he wouldn't sin, which means at least conceptually, the potential of him sinning is on the table. So at least to the degree that action has to be taken to avoid it happening, right? So can Jesus sin? Well, it's a conceptual possibility that actions need to be taken to avoid. That's clear. Okay. Um, I, I would reckon it like this. Jesus didn't have a sin nature, like we do, but Adam didn't either, and Adam could sin. So you don't need to have a sin nature to be tempted. That, that to me, is the, the pushback against the people that want to say Jesus' temptation was like me taking trash because Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Well, neither did Adam. And so if he's the second Adam... I would, I'd, I'd press and say, no, I think in every instance, I think the devil is shrewd in every instance of Jesus temptation. You'll, you'll notice this. It's a good thing in and of itself. And the temptation is at the wrong time or in the wrong way. So when Jesus is, is food, a, is food a bad thing in general? No, all things to be equal. Food's great. So is Jesus really hungry after 40 days of fasting? Do you think it's not some evidence of sin in him or a sin nature that when Satan says, wouldn't a loaf of bread be really good right now? I doubt, I bet you, some part of Jesus is, yes, it would. Righteously, hungry, food would be wonderful. But the Father's determined right now I'm to fast. Now's not the time for food. So the devil puts a good, Jesus isn't craving a wicked thing. He isn't craving a bad thing. The temptation is wrong way. Same thing with the, I'll give you every, every, uh, every kingdom of the world. Isn't Jesus in one sense going to the cross precisely because he wants every kingdom of the world? So does Jesus want every kingdom in the world? You bet he does. You can have it without a cross. You can can have it without crucifixion. I think that's a real temptation. And the same thing with vindication. You're the the son of God, the king of glory, and these people are mocking and they're going to spit in your face. Wouldn't it be great if you jumped off the temple and God sent his angels and all people could see you really are the son of God? Wouldn't that type of vindication publicly be great? Well, he's going to be vindicated. He, the resurrection has vindicated in, in some degree. And when he comes again and every eye sees him, he'll be fully vindicated. Again, real carrot, real object of desire for the Lord. But you can have it the wrong way in the wrong time. So I think Jesus' temptation is absolutely a real temptation. Um, I, I don't, don't want to, I really object to, the, to, I think the teaching that Jesus' temptation is like you and I being tempted with trash. Is incredibly injurious to the to 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 Hebrew's presentation of Jesus as a sympathetic high priest, uh, which I think is incredibly precious. So that's my answer to could Jesus sin? Chris wants Chris, you're gonna bring us home, and then we're gonna. No, no,
2: Mike. (laughs) What you were just saying made something occur to me. The uh, you're talking about is it a temptation uh, to have the kingdoms without the cross? It turns out so much so that later on, Jesus asked God, if there is any other way beside the cross, can you please take this cup from me? So it it seems like that temptation not only was pointed out by Satan, but continued on with Jesus, like that might've been something that he had to struggle against for his whole ministry.
0: Satan's had thousands of years to improve, get better at and plan tempting. I, I don't so I, I would assume that whatever he's doing in the wilderness with Jesus is shrewd. Um, I, I would assume that whatever he's doing is crafty. Um, we're told in Genesis 3 there's no animal in the field more crafty than the serpent so I would I would not assume he's just <laughs> stupid Satan why would Jesus want those things? I would assume he's and it looks like he's he's picked real carrots that have real desire um, I, I'd assume that but anyway. We're over time. God bless, Godspeed, good day.